most famous gospel tract ever written, ever passed out. It's been used to lead thousands of people to Christ. Is a tract that was written years ago. It's called The Four Spiritual Laws. And if you're familiar with that, um, you may know this, but if you're not familiar, the law number one in The Four Spiritual Laws was this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Rick Warren said that when he became a pastor, he discovered uh, that God loved him and everyone else had a wonderful plan for his life. And so I can tell you after 18 years of ministry, sometimes that is true. Uh, in my first church, I had a lady there. Um, that was her uh, motto. Her life mission was to make sure that I, as the pastor, was informed of every single special emphasis Sunday on our denominational calendar. And she would appreciate if I would bend my preaching towards that, if I would push that from the pulpit. And listen, there was no shortage of special emphasis Sunday. There was Baptist Men's uh, Sunday. There was WMU Women's Sunday. There was World Hunger Sunday. There was Lottie Moon Offering Sunday. There was Annie Armstrong Missions Offering Sunday. Uh, there was National Southern Baptist Hate and Boycott Disney and Judge You If You Don't Sunday. I don't know if you guys celebrated that or not, but you get the idea, right? And on top of all that, there's all these uh, cultural expectations that you bend your preaching toward all the cultural holidays. You got to have a Father's Day sermon and a Mother's Day sermon and a sermon on love on Valentine's Day weekend. And certainly got to have Christmas sermons, Easter sermons. You, know, you get the idea. But after 18 years of ministry, I rarely bend my preaching towards any of those uh, special emphasis Sunday. But on the few exceptions, um, I will do that. And today is one of those special exceptions. Today I want us to observe and celebrate and teach on uh, something that I believe is very near to the heart of God, and that is this. It is National Los Angeles Rams Sunday. I just want to acknowledge that. Also known as, Dear Lord, Anyone But the Patriots Sunday. Am I right? Well, all joking aside, uh, today we're right in the middle of two special emphasis Sunday. A few weeks ago was National Sanctity of Life Sunday. We got snowed out that Sunday, but also in the month of February is a Safe Families Fostering Initiative, and both of those things are dear to our hearts. And so I want to share a standalone message with you this morning uh, titled simply, Love Life. And we're going to look at two passages this morning primarily. We're going to look at uh, several texts. But if you want to take your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start off there laying the foundation. And then if you want to mark, we'll get uh, later uh, in the message into Psalm 139 this morning as well. Uh, when you speak on subjects like abortion or uh, social justice, uh, there will always be those who accuse you of preaching politics. And uh, I'll assure you that what I'm going to teach today is not uh, political in nature, and I can prove that with simple math. Uh, the passage that we're going to start off today uh, was written in Genesis chapter 1, depending on who you read, what scholar, uh, somewhere between 1440 B.C. and around 1400 B.C., and the two-party system that currently exists in our country of uh, Democrats and Republicans uh, was formed around 1790. So over 3,000 years earlier, before any political party could ascribe their platform to these principles, God himself spoke to these and decreed them, declared them as principles that reflect the character of God, regardless of what a policy of a platform of a party would be. And so, as we build a framework uh, for God's view of life, I kind of want to move us from kind of the general big picture idea of understanding this idea from God's perspective, and then kind of move into some more specific applications this morning. And so I want to start off building the foundation in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 24 down through verse 31 this morning. 
Verse 24, Genesis 1, then God said, let us, the earth, bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The reason it's in the plural there is reference to the Trinity. Uh, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I've given you every herb that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps in the earth, in which there is life, I've given every green herb for food, and it was so. And verse 31 says, And then God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. In Genesis chapter 1, God is setting up the created order of how the world works from God's economy and God's perspective. And in those verses, uh, we see the first foundational principle this morning regarding a framework uh, for a view of life, which is simply this, is that human life has value because we are made in God's image. That is clearly taught uh, in Genesis chapter 1. Last year, my son had a teacher, and he challenged students regarding why they believe what they believe is kind of a critical thinking exercise. And one of the questions he posed was this, if man is made in the image of God and man does evil things, then how do we defend the idea that God is good? And that's actually a great question. Maybe off the top of your head, you're like, I don't, I'd have to wrestle with that myself. And how do you reconcile these truths? And how do you reconcile the fact that the Bible defines God as perfectly holy? It defines man as completely sinful and depraved, but yet we're still in the image, a fallen man in the image of a holy God. So that's a fair question, right? And so let's explore this uh, biblically. Now, contrary uh, to what many people believe, uh, men and women, humanity, are not equal to the rest of the created order. All right? Now, not everyone agrees with that out there. I've seen some of your Facebook posts. And listen, I hate to say this. Your dog is not a human, all right? Now, it's a lot closer to being a human than your cat. Amen? Dogs, way closer. Listen, I didn't write this. All dogs go to heaven. I didn't write that. I'm just preaching it, all right? But here's the reality. No matter how much you love your, your pet, uh, mankind alone has been created in the image of God. You and I possess a moral, spiritual, uh, intellectual capacity the rest of creation uh, does not possess. Animals operate on instinct. If you're surfing the channels this afternoon and you uh, get on, on National Geographic and, and uh, you flip on there and there's the cutest a baby zebra just frolicking out in the meadow, just, you know, I don't know what they do. Anyway, and you're sitting there thinking, that is adorable. Look at that zebra. 
That it's the cutest baby. Makes me want to go to the zoo this year in the bay. Like, that is so adorable. Listen, you know who's not thinking that? The lion in the weeds. You know what he's thinking? I'm hungry. He's not. Listen, at no point is there a moral quandary for him as he prepares to pounce on that baby. He's not sitting there thinking, I hate myself for what I'm about to do. I swore after the last time I would never do this again. What's wrong with me? I need to go talk to someone. I hate myself. After finishing his dinner, he does not struggle with the pain of shame or regret. You know why? Because he doesn't have an inner man nature that's reserved solely for humanity in God's distinctive creative work. He doesn't have a moral or spiritual capacity. To use the language of the Bible, uh, he doesn't have the inner man that's described of humanity. So we have an outer man, but also we have an inner man. The Bible says this, though the outward man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. That lion does not have an inner man capable of a volitional will and emotion and intellect and all those things. And so that inner man belongs to humanity. And distinctly, it's how we're created in the image of God, distinct from all of creation. A moral and spiritual capacity, the ability to reason and, and rationalize and act on a volitional will, and animals just operate on instinct. Look at uh, verses 26 through 28, again, the key passage where uh, this idea of man's identity solely in the image of God is clearly declared. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image. He didn't say that about the birds of the sky, did he? He didn't say that about the fish of the sea or the creeping things that he described and the cattle and, and all those things. He didn't say that about the plant world. He said, hey, listen to these plants. Every green herb of the field I've given you for food. He didn't make any distinction. But when it came to mankind himself, he said, hey, let us make man in our, the Trinity, plural, in our image. According to our likeness. What does that mean? The ability to think and act and feel and rationalize and make decisions out of a volitional will. Character of God is the same, made in the image of God. And then in verse 27 it says clearly, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him distinctly, subcategories, male and female. He created them. The Hebrew language of verse 27 makes it clear uh, that mankind is uh, distinct from the animals. Listen to this insight from one commentator I read this week. Here's what he said. He said the Hebrew word for man, uh, in verse 27 of this text, is Adam. Depending on context, the word can mean man, mankind, or the name Adam. The language used is profound. It makes a significant point that the image of God distinction is made between mankind and all other creatures, not between the subcategories of male and female. So he says, hey, in the distinction, the original language, it's not between male and female. It's a, he said the distinction is made between mankind and the rest of creation, the original Hebrew. Here's what he says. It's only regarding the creation of mankind that God says, let us make man in our own image, and God only directly breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. Now, there's all kinds of debates throughout church history about this idea of being made in 
God's image or the imago Dei is what the term to describe that. There's a lot of debate about the effects of sin and, and are we still in the image of God and, and how do we rationalize all of those realities. And so let me make clear two thoughts this morning. First, the Bible teaches that even after sin, mankind is still created in God's image. We see that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We see that in James chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. So even though the fall has greatly affected all of humanity, the Bible still says that man alone has the ability to think and act out of a volitional will and experience emotions and rationalization and all of those things that is unique to humanity and separate from the created world. And secondly, the Bible also teaches that sin has devastatingly affected the image of God in us, and therefore Christ died because all men need to be saved. And so in the idea of our moral capacity, the inner man, we're in the image of God, but morally or spiritually, we've inherited the image of Adam or our fallen sin nature, and God knew that, and so he sent Christ to reconcile us to him. But nonetheless, even after the fall, All human life has value and dignity because every life is an image bearer of God himself. That person that cuts you off in traffic, image bearer despite your denial of it at that moment, right? I've got a friend, he said, Brad, I get road rage really bad. He said, you know what's really helped me? I said, what's that? He said, whenever someone cuts me off in traffic, he said, I don't care who's in the car. He said, I smack the dash as hard as I can. I yell out for the whole world to hear, you immortal soul for whom Christ died. I said, does that make you feel better? He said, no, it does not, but I say it anyway. Every life, an image bearer of God himself and therefore has value and dignity inherently. Is a part of God's created order. So here's the second thing I want you to understand. Because life has value, every life, as an image bearer, we seek justice on behalf of the injustice. You can't reckon, you can't sit and say, hey, every life has value. Every life is an image bearer of God. And then sit back and say, that's a real shame. He said, no, the, the Bible says, hey, because every life has value, then you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, it is a biblical mandate to seek justice on behalf of those experiencing injustice. Now, there's a tremendous amount of debate on this issue of justice in our culture. Uh, is social justice a biblical idea? Uh, does it lead to a social gospel where, where the gospel's reduced down to collecting coats and ladling soup? Uh, how do we reconcile injustices of the past, even if it's not sins we're personally committing in the present? That's a common conversation. How does the idea of biblical justice uh, spill out into economic policy and immigration policy and, and the justice system and all those reforms that are, that are taking place. You get the idea. Listen, these are complex issues that are not easily solved no matter what speech any politician makes. But here is something there should be no debate about for a follower of Jesus Christ. Every life has value and therefore we should be seeking justice on behalf of those who are experiencing injustice in the world around us. Listen to just a few verses from Proverbs and Psalms, and I could have picked other places in the Old Testament or New Testament. Here's why I picked Proverbs and Psalms, because Proverbs and Psalms are genres of literature in the Old Testament that are not confined by covenant or by culture. What that means is this. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament, we quote a verse. Sometimes other people go, well, listen, that was true only for the nation of Israel. That doesn't apply to us today. Proverbs are wisdom that transcend culture. 
culture and covenant. Psalms are wisdom that transcend culture and covenant. All right? So listen to Psalm 41.1. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. God says, hey, you want your life to be blessed? Then concern yourself about the injustice being heaped on those who are weak around you. Psalm 50, verse 6, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. And so if you want to model the character of God, God is the God of justice. Probably the strongest verse, maybe in the entire Bible, certainly the Old Testament, certainly in the book of Proverbs, uh, that speaks clearly to this. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 says this, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Listen to this. Defend. That is an action verb. That is not sitting back and going, that's a shame. Isn't that awful? It's an action verb. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Let me remind you what we taught a little over a year ago regarding this issue just last year when uh, Jesus said this. Now listen, you may not be a Bible scholar, uh, but, but my guess is you could probably fill in the blank here. Let's just try this out. Jesus said this, love your neighbor as fill in the blank. Yourself, yeah. And when Jesus said that, he's actually quoting from the Old Testament as he often did. And uh, specifically, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 is an entire chapter all about uh, not injusticing other people and seeking justice on behalf of those who've experienced injustice. That's the verse or the passages Jesus is quoting from when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Let me give you some highlights from Leviticus 19. Live generously toward the poor and the foreigner. That's what justice looks like. Do not steal from anyone. Don't, don't uh, exploit anyone for your own injustice. Do not be deceptive in dealings with people. Do not oppress, rob, or exploit the poor by paying unfair wages. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. In other words, don't take advantage of people just because you can. Uh, don't be partial to the poor or show favor to the great, but judge honestly. Uh, verse 15, verse 16, do not commit financial fraud against your neighbor. And I can just rattle on, on and on and on. So for Jesus, speaking to Jews shaped by the Torah in their culture, now this is what it looked like to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does it look like in 21st century America? I think it brings to mind some questions we've got to wrestle with this morning. Who are the people that experience injustice around me? Who are the marginalized or forgotten people exploited people? Who are the people who are susceptible to being taken advantage of? And whoever those people are in your circle of influence, and listen, you have a biblical mandate on your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ to seek justice on their behalf because their life has value because they are made in the image of God. They are image bearers of God himself. Now, what does it mean to seek justice on behalf of someone else? If you're listening, say amen. What that means is this, practically. It means that whatever we would want for ourselves, we want and advocate for on behalf of our neighbor. That's exactly what that means. Whatever it is you would want for yourself, 
you would want and advocate for and leverage your resources on behalf of your neighbor. Now, th- think about this. Well, whoever in culture you look at, listen, whatever's going on, you would look at them and say, hey, they're clearly experiencing injustice And here's what I would want for me if I were in that situation. And so the mandate of Christ on my life is to not only want the same, but to advocate and to leverage my resources so that it actually might happen to defend using the language of Proverbs 31. Now, let me make a statement here that some of you are not going to like. That's the bad news. But the good news is everyone will be equally offended. Is that good news or what? When we take this position that every life is an image bearer of God, and as a result of that, we have to take up the cause of seeking out justice on behalf of those who have experienced injustice. I believe that both political parties fall short in their platform. Republicans are strong when it comes to the unborn, and Democrats are strong in regards to the vulnerable, but both of them fall short of a fully developed biblical picture The scripture calls us to, once I see everyone as an image bearer of God. Now let me tell you what that means practically. That means that we speak up and advocate for the unborn. That means that we speak up and advocate for the orphan. That means that we leverage our resources to fight against those enslaved in human trafficking or prostitution. That means that we have compassion towards refugees fleeing persecution. That means that we come alongside the vulnerable who are struggling with poverty and addiction because we know they're the the population most likely to be taken advantage of. And let me just say this openly, I'm aware of this. There's a fine line between uh, rewarding laziness and helping the poor. But when true injustice is happening, you and I have a call to advocate on their behalf. You and I have a biblical responsibility to want for them what we would want for ourselves under the banner of loving your neighbor as yourself. We cannot restrict our advocacy for life to just the unborn, but it certainly cannot exclude the unborn either. And if your political party affiliation doesn't allow you to do that, listen, then your God is power at the expense of Christ-likeness. Now, if you're like me, you see all the injustice around you, and you don't even know where to start and how in the world you make a difference in a fallen world. And so let me encourage you by showing you practically how one family in our church has done that very thing and has made and is making a difference. I am Devin Morse. I'm Mike Morse, and we've been with Liberty. We've been here attending Liberty Heights for about eight years. So uh, we learned about Safe Families through an informational meeting that was hosted here at church. Um, so we ended up attending that meeting, and then after that uh, meeting, we kind of continued to talk about and pray about uh, whether or not we should uh, get involved. And from there, uh, God kind of really put on our heart to uh, become a host family. So that's how we got started. Uh, so Safe Families is just a faith-based organization um, where they have 
different opportunities to uh, engage with them, whether you're a host family, whether you're a family coach, which is working with the uh, parents of the children to kind of get them back up on their feet. And they also have plenty of support roles um, for people who aren't maybe ready to host a child or have that capacity, but they can help another in kind of administrative areas. After we joined Safe Families, it's been, it's been pretty great to see, not only through the hostings, just how God has worked through those, um, but just the opportunity to pour into these kids' lives, um, as well as helping the, you know, just helping the families. Um, it's also been great from our, our kids' standpoint to continue to help reinforce them, putting others before themselves, um, just kind of to watch them willingly uh, sacrifice things like bedrooms, toys, and time. It's been, it's been really great to see. As we began with Safe Families, we expected um, going into it that we were going to build relationships and step outside of our comfort zone. Um, and we expected uh, to love on kids that couldn't provide anything in return to us. Um, but what we didn't expect was how um, God was going to use this ministry to bring us closer to Him and how um, just amazing it's been to see God work through this ministry to strengthen our own faith. Uh, we would definitely recommend Safe Families uh, to anyone, um, even if you're not at a place where you can become a host family and there's still plenty of other ways to get involved. Um, whether it be through being a host family, being a family coach, or joining one of their many support teams, there's definitely ways to engage. Can we celebrate that practical example of what that actually looks like? And so we do that. Why? Because all life has value. And so therefore we defend and advocate for those who are experiencing justice. But here is the $64 million question. When does life begin? Does our fight against injustice only extend to the pre-born? Does it only extend to those who have already been born? And so let's let God and his inspired, infallible word, not our affiliation, govern our thoughts. And as we do that, we clearly conclude that life begins at conception. The idea of a biblical worldview simply means this. It's a fancy way of saying that, that every opinion I have, every position I have, every thought, it's governed, it flows through the filter of God's word. That's what a biblical worldview is. How do you view this issue? Well, I'm looking at this through the lens of Scripture. That's what it means to have a biblical worldview. And so in looking at a biblical worldview, the strongest passage in the entire Bible would be Psalm 139. So if you mark that, you can flip over there. And when I look at Psalm 139, there's a couple truths I want to see this morning. Number one, we clearly see that God's care begins at conception. Psalm 139 paints an incredible picture of God's intimate involvement with a pre-born person. And so in asking the question of, of when does God get involved in life, you make the case clearly here in Psalm 139 that it's in the womb. Uh, David answers the, that question, uh, verse 13. Look at verse 13 in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me. In my mother's womb, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And uh, one translation, verse 13, uh, describes uh, the inward parts. It says, you have possessed my reins. Uh, the word reins there, in the uh, ancient Hebrews, it was the, the seed of emotions and desire and longing. It's what we would call uh, the, the inner man. It literally meant to signify the kidneys, but poetically, it was used of the inner nature of a person. 
And so God is at work shaping even the inner man nature of every single a case of conception. Now, you know how I know that's true? Because I've got more than one kid. You ever have a kid, those of you who have multiple kids, uh, you look at your kids sometimes and you're like, how in the world did all of you come from the same parents with the same DNA, raised in the same house, going to the same church, under the same principles, with the same discipline, the same encouragement, and you're radically different, Right? And so why? Because God is uh, shaping the the inner man at the point of conception. Second phrase, he says, uh, you have covered me in my mother's womb. In other words, God, you've cared and got involved at the very place of conception. That uh, word actually means that phrase, to interweave or to knit uh, together as one who weaves cloth or who makes a basket. Job chapter 10 graphically describes God's intimate involvement in forming his life before he was even born. Listen to Job chapter 10. He says, you formed me with your hands. You made me, yet now you completely destroy me. Remember, Job's going through some serious affliction. Remember that you made me from dust. Will you turn your back to dust so soon? You Listen to this. This is undeniable. Verse 10. You guided my conception. He doesn't say, hey God, when I came out, you were in the delivery room cheering me on. You know, you weren't there just looking over at my mom going, hey, do you think he looks like an alien? Because I sure do. Looks on this, right? He says, no, you guided my conception and formed me where? In the womb. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You knit my bones and sinews together. You gave me life and showed me your unfailing love before he was ever born. My life was preserved by your care. We share other passages for the sake of time. Let me explain why God's uh, care and involvement is so evident from the point of conception. So if you're listening, say amen. In both the Old and New Testament, in the language that's used, there is no distinction made between a preborn and an already born or post birth life. As a matter of fact, the exact same words are used in the original language with no distinction at all. Let me give you a couple examples. In Genesis chapter 25, we read the account of Rebekah being pregnant with Jacob and Esau, and it says this the babies jostled within her. And that word there for preborn babies is the same word chosen as the word already used of children who have been born. There's no distinction in the word of God. Hosea chapter 12 verse 3 says, In the womb he, being Jacob, grasped his brother's heel as a man he struggled with God. And so it's the same word, same idea. In other words, it's not this, there's some kind of pre-cell collection of Jacob. And there's this grown man. No, it's the same language in the Bible. In the New Testament, we find interesting use of the Greek word for baby. In Luke chapter 18, verse 15, we read, And they were bringing even the babies to him in order that he might touch them. Now, clearly, these are babies that have already been born. Can we agree on that in the context of that verse? But then in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, says, It came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, so clearly a preborn baby, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's interesting. In both of those passages in the New Testament, the both places, the word for baby is brephos. There is no distinction, the word of God, between life in the womb and life outside the womb. The word of God used the exact same language, saying, hey, it's all life from God's perspective. 
You say, well, they didn't know the difference. They didn't have technology today. And, and so kind of them, it was all the same. Listen, God, in speaking, the inspired, God-breathed word, sovereignly and divinely chose to use the same word with no distinction. And so God's care begins at conception. Psalm 139 also teaches that God's design is displayed at conception. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. He says, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That word fearfully is the idea. Listen, it's not God being nervous like, oh, I've never done this before. And, you know, can you get on YouTube and find, like, there's none of that going on, right? The word fearfully here in the original language is the idea of reverently. We speak of things that are reverent for things that we're in awe of. For example, Reverend Cunningham. Is that not a majestic sounding, fr- right? And then what's he say in verse 15? When does God get involved in that reverent creation, that reverent work that's going on? Verse 15 says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That word in the Hebrew language has the idea, the lowest parts of the earth is symbolic of the womb of a mother. You know, Psalm 139 says, hey, listen, God's design, God's care, God's compassion, God's reverent handiwork begins at the point of conception. And so that's where our starting point for life and care and concern and advocacy should be as well if we're going to follow Christ in a biblical worldview. Now, let me just say one more thing very quickly and then we're done. And even though I'm going to talk on this for just a moment, it is needed and it is necessary, and so I'm going to encourage you to dial in here at the end. And I want to share this last truth, which is this, is that grace is available and heaven is assured. If I just stop the message right here and I look at the statistics about abortion in culture and in churches, in a church of 1,000, 1,100, 1,200 regular attenders, lots of people, if we stop the message here, would walk out of here today filled with shame filled with brokenness when the gospel provides hope and peace in Christ. And so let me say two things slowly and clearly this morning. Number one, there is no sin that stains so deeply that it cannot be washed clean by the blood of Christ. And so if you're here and you're a man or a woman, you've been party to an abortion taking place, let me read that statement again. There is no sin that stains so deeply that it cannot be washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not one. 1 John 1, verse 9 doesn't have a qualifier at the end of it. It says if we confess our sins, uh, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every sin under the sun, no matter how much shame and brokenness has been experienced as a result of that sin, he says, hey, listen, whatever it is, he cleanses us and forgives us from all unrighteousness. If you're here and you've been party to an abortion, listen, uh, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. 
You have not gone so far that you've exhausted the supply of God's grace. So what do you do? You confess that sin. Uh, You ask the Lord for forgiveness. And then hear me this morning. You move forward fully assured of the grace of God at work in your life and not as some kind of second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You live in the truth of who you are in Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I want want to say to those in the room who've walked through that pain, and that's simply this. Your baby is in the arms of God. I stole that phrasing from a little book written by John MacArthur called Safe in the Arms of God. I've read it multiple times. I've given out over 18 years of ministry to people who've walked through abortions, through people who've had miscarriages, people who've lost children, uh, little children, and they've wondered, is this child with the Lord? And the answer clearly from Scripture is yes, yes, and yes again. In the book, he's writing and building the case for this biblically. I'll just give you a little snapshot. He's describing the children of the nation of Israel and because of their willful disobedience to the commands of God. He said, hey, listen, uh, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, because of your willful disobedience, you will not enter the promised land. You forfeited that as a consequence of your willful, open disobedience for me and the worship of me alone. He says, but the little ones and children of Israel, they will enter the promised land. Do you know why that is? Because they were innocent of willfully violating God's clear commands. They were not capable of making a rational, willful choice to disobey God and not believe, and unbelief is the sin that leads people to hell. And children and babies are not capable of unbelief. They've not experienced Romans chapter 118, which says that men have suppressed the knowledge of truth in their lives. Interesting passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12 David, who lost a baby, King David, gives this description. Here's what David said. He said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. In other words, as hard as I pray, he's not coming back to earth, but the glory of grace is this, is that one day I'll be reunited with my child in heaven. I'm not going, or he's not coming to me, but I am going to him. So take heart, moms and dads, your little one is with the Lord who loves them greater than any parent ever could. And that same mercy that God extends to those little ones is available to every person in the room this morning, regardless of any past transgression. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair when I think of what's fair. Listen, it's not fair. It's grace. And it's wonderful. It's amazing. And it will save you this morning through the person and work of Jesus Christ. His mercy is available to every person in the room this morning. Regardless of your past, He has a place reserved for you in an eternal future. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. His mercies are new every single morning. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask a couple of questions as you begin to process the Word of God this morning. 
And the first question is simply this. What is it that you're trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you hoping that one day your good outweighs your bad on some kind of eternal scales? Do you have some sins in your life? Maybe ones we talked about today, maybe ones that we didn't even reference today. But you feel so guilty of them, you wonder, is there grace left for me? Listen, the Bible says this, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. That includes you, friend. Are you still trying to work off your past sin debt? Are you still trying to be a good person with the hopes that God would accept you on the basis of your good life and your good deeds? Hear me this morning. Jesus Christ alone paid for your sins and God will accept you on behalf of the payment Jesus made for your life. And if you're here this morning, I want to ask you, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? And you didn't know the answer or the answer was something other than Jesus, then hear me this morning. You've come to the right place at the right time. Jesus Christ wants to save you this morning. Jesus Christ wants to forgive you of your sins. And if you'll pray and confess your sins and declare that Christ died on the cross, was buried and rose the third day on your behalf, and you receive him by faith for the forgiveness of your sins, the good news is he'll save you right in your seat this morning. Would you do that? Would you pray right now and accept Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you surrender your life to him? Would you make a commitment today for him to be your Lord and Savior and become a follower of Jesus Christ today? Would you do that? He'll do that. He'll save you right in your seat today if you'll do that by faith. But for the many of you in the room this morning who have received Jesus Christ, I can't help but think there are lots of people in the room for lots of reasons, some we talked about today, others we didn't even reference, who are not walking in the full freedom of forgiveness. For those who know what what saving grace is, but they don't know what it looks like to live by grace. And guilt dominates your life, and shame has marred your identity. And you find yourself confessing the same sins over and over, asking forgiveness over and over for things that Christ has already forgiven and if that describes you this morning for whatever reason you say you know what I want to start walking in the freedom of grace I want God's grace to define my life not my sin and shame help me to live free in my identity in Christ I'm struggling with that would you just Heads bowed, eyes closed, honest before God. Would you just raise your hands? Hey, that's me. Pray for me. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Anybody else? Just want to pray for you. Amen. Father, I pray this morning that forgiveness is not something we talk about only in referencing our past, but Lord, forgiveness is a truth that we walk in every day. Not because we take sin lightly, but because, Lord, we rest in the truth that where sin is abounded, grace abounds much more. And God, help all of us, me included, not just to understand and experience saving grace, but God, to walk in the, in the freedom of sustaining grace. 
God, to walk in the truth of our identity in Christ as opposed to walking in the shame of our past sin. God, help us to live free because whom the Son sets free, we are free indeed. And so may we not just sing that truth, may we live out of that truth. Not because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done. And so God, I pray that today we would leave different because the hope and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.